Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. We just had an awesome rip with Jason Williams from Morgan Creek Digital. Um, the guy has a ton of energy and was just, you know, we, we came to talk about investing opportunities post-corona and it, we just talked about everything. Uh, there, there were three very specific themes that, that we wanted to, to get after. We wanted to talk about the political nature of the bailouts. Uh, and this is really important when we talk about fairness and money. Uh, and, and so Jason has some really interesting stories and backgrounds as an entrepreneur who uh, ha- experienced you know, what it's like to be a small, uh, small business owner and then what it was like watching what were not small businesses uh, you know, fill out the right forms, use their super accounting uh, abilities that, that most small businesses don't have to get their paperwork filed quick so they could get that money from the money printer that just went burr and how unfair that is. Uh, and so we talk a lot about that. Uh, we also talk about the three cohorts of people that co- are coming out of the coronavirus and how uh, different businesses are going to have to market to these different types of people. Um, and I thought that was incredibly interesting and uh, has a lot of foresight. Uh, it's yet to play out, but I, I think there's a lot of merit there. Uh, Christian, what else did we talk about and what, what did you like? Again, like I said, we talked about like pretty much everything, but I think that thinking about how the world changes and how the world doesn't change is is really important, especially as we're kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not sure if that's actually Maybe. true, but that's just Maybe. kind of like the sense I get. But yeah, I mean, in general, I think like the most the most educational part of, you know, this this was just you know, thinking about how Morgan Creek and Jason look at the world of crypto and how they communicate it to pensions, to other legacy institutions where they're fundraising for or where they're, you know, raising for their fund. I think they got it right. Like the way that they describe this stuff, the way that Jason sees the world going, uh, it's very uh, solar punk, as my friend Pat Riley likes to state it. He does paint a, a, a world where, you know, after the growing pains, th- there's a, you know, a beautiful light at the end. Jason is absolutely a futurist and his energies just exudes out of him. So this was a fantastic conversation. Jason really brings the heat and brings the hot takes. And so please enjoy this conversation with Jason Williams. Ethereum was actually my, my, yeah, that was my entry point into cryptocurrency. Same, mine too. Nice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So as a Bitcoiner, uh, I think that altcoins are fantastic for onboarding. Where most yeah. Bitcoiners are like very anti altcoin, uh, but you I please differentiate between altcoins and ether. Like, come on. Okay, whatever. All roads lead back to Bitcoin. <laughs> if, if you read my, if you read my articles, you would say you would hear me use that line for ether everywhere. Yeah, well, that's stupid. <laughs> so this is typically how this goes. Yeah, this that's it. this is it. Oh, I love this. I love this. this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, we're all called we're all college buddies, so. It works out. Do you do you both live in the same area, or are you back home now? I'm in Seattle, and he's in San Fran. One second, I just I lost you guys. Yep. Bye. Uh, yeah, we went to school down in LA uh, with each other, um, and I'm I'm from Seattle, and he just moved to to San Fran afterwards. Um, That's awesome. So the the college the old college buddy dynamic uh, really kind of allows us to to go a little bit further than what people normally would on podcasts. Got it. And in um, how has the COVID situation been in Seattle? So I was actually in Florida when COVID transitioned from being a topic to a big deal. And, and when that happened, I scurried home. 
Uh, and so I kind of didn't, wasn't here at the very start of it. Um, but like the, everyone's taking it really seriously. So, so what, what really happened with Seattle was like, we had this very early retirement home, get it. And it kind of spread in that retirement home, but it was really well contained. And so like Seattle started social distancing and wearing masks way sooner, even though it wasn't actually further along, like in the, in the wave of the growth of the cases. And so we've actually done really well when it comes to doing the things you need to do. So it's, it's, it hasn't hit very hard really. Got it. Got it. Well, that's good. Uh, are mm-hmm. you guys in a, a situation where you have to stay at home or s- stay yeah. in place or are you allowed to do whatever you want to do? I mean, you can go to the store, you can go to the parks. Like when I, when I go run around, we should talk about this on the podcast. Actually, that's not, that's not pod, podcast subject matter. Uh, so like when I go running, I see people all the time, like people still going to the gro- to grocery stores, like grocery stores are pretty decently Filled, I would say with with masks, no masks. With, with masks and and like there's there's face guards between the cashiers and people, and then yeah. there's like six feet apart on the checkouts. So like everyone's doing like the stuff. But yeah, they at, at our grocery stores now they have like elder shopping times. Yes, yeah, yep. have you, you have yep. the same thing. And yeah. I, I'm I in SF and the same thing. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think that goes away after this is over. Never. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I was, I had a big argument internally. We, we kind of use what we call intelligent discourse at Morgan Creek digital to figure stuff out, which is literally just yelling at each other, mm-hmm. but not hurting each other's feelings. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was kind of riffing on what the, uh, the post COVID world looks like, cause there's going to be like this new normal. And I think it's broken into like three population sets. It's mm-hmm. going to be like people 25 and younger, they don't give a shit about anything. They're literally just going to go to the beach, go no back mask, to work. go back to work. Everyone's stupid, whatever. Mm-hmm. Then there's like the segment between 25 and 55 that are, that are kind of going to act um, like, don't breathe on me. Don't shake my hand. Don't hug me. I have a mask on. My kid has a mask. They're sanitizing everything and they try to participate, but large crowds are going to be like, eh, and, they're going to kind of mm-hmm. move in a very stealthy way. Then we're going to lose like 55 and older, the generation that used to hang out in Starbucks all day, like the mm-hmm. older folks, they're gone. They're yeah, not going to be around. Home. Yeah. They're not going to be around people. I don't they're think. Home, home by default. <clears throat> right. And the trick for entrepreneurs is to somehow connect those three groups back into commerce and retail uh, with good UI UX mm-hmm. and, kind of capture because they all need products and services but some are going home forever some are going to be super cautious and then some are just going to do what they always did okay so, Yo, so this is definitely podcast content this is definitely podcast content that was really good podcast no, we'll content. Hit it again. We, were, we were okay you want to hit we can either hit it again or we can just keep on going one of the two things no, no well, we, we gotta start well, over, start gotta start over. over. Yeah, yeah 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 because yeah, cool. i'm gonna stream it right now so i'm gonna hit okay. on ready okay so Jason Williams, welcome to POV Crypto. I'm happy that we're, we're matching here, supporting Watford and Bitcoin. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, doing well. Good to be here. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for taking time from your busy schedule to, to talk with us. Uh, you seem to be on a, a podcast roll right now. Yeah, I don't know what's happened. They must be at the bottom of the barrel. So uh, <laughs> everyone's calling me. So this is like my <laughs> fifth or sixth podcast this week. So uh, it's been fun. It's been fun. Jason, will you give us the little spiel of who you are so our listeners can know who they're listening to? Practice medicine, uh, went to PA school uh, at a a small school in North Carolina, got accepted Mm. to Yale. While I was at Yale, came up with the idea for 
uh, ambulatory care centers that would do 80% of what you find in a U.S.-based emergency department. Ended up dropping out of that residency and uh, moving back to North Carolina. Then uh, started FASMIT, essentially, uh, over the next 10, 12 years, built it into the nation's second largest urgent care and primary care. Um, 1,400 employees. Uh, we had about 400 doctors and PAs working for me. And I took it through three private equity exits. The first in 2010, we sold it to uh, uh, or uh, took a large investment from a, a Florida-based and New York-based private equity firm called Combest Capital. Mm-hmm. Then we did a really cool transaction with Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, which was the first time in U.S. healthcare history that a major payer had invested in the provider side of healthcare. Then finally, uh, I sold the whole company in 2015 to a Boston-based private equity firm called Abri Partners. And that transaction was about $500 million in total. They blocked me out of working in healthcare for 10 years. Uh, so I couldn't practice medicine anymore, couldn't do um, any uh, non-appointment-based healthcare. Um, so from there, uh, I ended up starting a uh, friends and family fund called Full Tilt Capital with Anthony Pompliano or Pomp. We invested 18 million bucks in- Pomp would be- in a in a capital firm called Full Tilt Capital, that's a yeah. perfect name for, for that, who. That's right. That's right. Full, <laughs> Came full, up with full the name. Tilt. Uh, you know what? I think we iterated on it over uh, texting back and forth, and somehow we came to Full Tilt Capital. Uh, it's probably we probably just thiefed it from Full Tilt Poker, but um, you know we we thought it was uh, we thought it kind of best described how we operate and how we think. So it's kind of like um, reaching something at its maximum velocity you know, at full tilt. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway, started full tilt capital, raised about 18 million bucks from friends and family, invested it into 63 companies and some, uh, some late stage pre IPO stuff. So we're on the cap table of like SpaceX, Reddit, Airbnb. We had an exit with Lyft. Then Mark Yusko called us. So I show up after Mark, Mark and Pomp have a few meetings. I have like a baseball cap on and a reflective vest because I'm doing my startup PRTI. I don't think Mark knew what was going on when I walked into his office. But after a series of meetings, the three of us decided that uh, we would start Morgan Creek Digital, raise a $25 million fund, and make it all focused on blockchain technologies, infrastructure investments around cryptocurrency. We ended up raising $41 million for the first fund. And that fund is special because it was anchored by public pensions out of Fairfax, the police, uh, public pension, and then uh, three other, four other institutions, uh, hospital system, a large insurance company, a university. Uh, we invested all that capital and then started Morgan Creek, uh, our fund too, uh, which mm-hmm. um, we've raised about $71 million uh, to date. Uh, so look, we've got about $130 million of AUM. The three of us uh, are fully focused on managing that capital. And I think we've made some good investments so far. That is uh, an extremely impressive history and past, and that's a very cool story as to, to how you've gotten here. And so uh, before we were recording, we kind of were, kind of were going through the list of topics. Uh, there are three different topics. And so I, the first question I actually want to ask you, and maybe that will point us in the right direction, is um, during these crazy times, uh, what are you really thinking about now in your head a lot that you weren't really thinking about before? Like what, what, what is in your mind? What has captured your attention lately? What are you, th- what are you chewing on? 
Yeah. So, so the people I hang out with or the people I work with, Mark, Pomp and others, you know, we, we kind of use this intelligent discourse as a, a method to kind of work things out. And I think the two of you do the same thing. You told me that you're like college buddies and that relationship can take it to like a next level, not typical of like podcast co-hosts. I think Pomp and I have that kind of relationship. And I think Mark enjoys that kind of banter where, you know, his world is very buttoned up. And then we roll up and are like, no, this is how I see things. So anyway, that intelligent discourse has led me to kind of keep pushing on everyone and saying, like, what is a new normal? Things are not going back to normal. You know, Mark keeps telling me, people are going to go back to the movie theater. And I'm still going to Starbucks. I'm like, dude, what Starbucks are you going to, first of all? Because they've closed them all down around me. You know, and everyone's in masks at Dunks. At least Dunks is still open, but it's still, you can't go inside. It's kind of weird. You know, they've got grocery stores open. You've got elder shopping times and everyone's still behind glass and not touching things. So, you know, as investors, as people trying to innovate, as entrepreneurs, I think it's, you have to start thinking about what is the new normal? What does this world look like post COVID, post your shutdown? Um, And it's, it's, I have some concepts of that that are pretty extraordinary, I think, or pretty, pretty interesting. There's, there's ways to make some money here. Yeah, so recently one of your podcasts was uh, with Tom Shaughnessy of Delphi Digital, and you talked about kind of how you see three different cohorts of people emerging, at least in America. Can you kind of break down that idea and how you think people, could, you know, entrepreneurs can, can service that or take advantage of that? Yeah, so it, as I described these just kind of three segments of, of our population, it's easy to kind of riff on how you would build something to cater to those people. You know, what I think happens right after this is you have uh, the the population kind of break into uh, this look. You're going to have people 25 and younger are going to go back to doing whatever they were doing before this. They think this is nonsense anyway, for the most part. Uh, Again, I'm just assuming a lot by these statements. They think this is nonsense anyway. They just want to go back to work. They just want to go shopping. They want to go to bars. They want to do the things that they were doing before. They want to date, whatever. And they're going to go do that. Um, Then the population between like 25 and 55, they're going to approach life more cautiously. They're, They're not going to return to a normal. They're going to participate in the new normal with masks and hand sanitizers and social distancing that doesn't go away. No more handshaking. Like they will be offended if you shake their hand. They'll be highly unlikely to feel very comfortable uh, in close quarters on public transportation. I think you and I got into that on on drinking one night on one of your podcasts where I said, people aren't going to use public transportation. And then someone said, well, people have to use public transportation. Well, yeah, but it's going to be different. And I think there's things you can think about on, on, on how it looks later. And then people 55 or older, people with comorbidities or illnesses, they're not going to be around. They're not going to go to movie theaters. They're not going to go out to restaurants. They're not going to go to crowded places. They're going to be like super early birds, special movie theaters that have social distancing and cater to those who just don't want to be around people or can't be around them. And um, the trick for us entrepreneurs, retailers, people in business right now, or how do you connect to those three groups? How do you sell things to them? How do you deliver pizza? How do you get them to go to your restaurant? How do you deliver your goods and services to them? 
And um, that is a super fun thing to kind of explore. And there's tons of opportunity there. Have you seen any companies just early on through this first month and a half already start kind of like moving in that direction? Big time, big time. So uh, let's start with like sanitation and sterilization. There are companies popping up that are using UV technologies to sanitize surfaces and sanitize rooms that are super cool. Uh, Think like robots driving around a hotel, goes into the hotel room, blasts it with light, and kills all the stuff that has been in that room historically that really hasn't been cleaned very well. I mean, a hotel room is fucking gross anyway, but I would much rather it be blasted with whatever, this super light, and kill you know 99.99% of germs and COVID and all kinds of other stuff. You take that to hospital settings, you take that to schools, um, you know, don't get me started about what schools look like in the future. I mean, colleges and universities, in my opinion, are going to be decimated. I don't know why my kids would want to go back to traditional school. Like they're finishing their schoolwork in four hours, five hours, and they're getting more work than they had when they were in school. And then they get to do stuff all day. Like they can go out, they can still participate, hopefully, in sports teams and stuff once we get out of this kind of shelter at home, but they'll be able to go and do stuff. So online services, online learning, um, activities, tutoring, uh, violin lessons, like my kids play instruments. Now they're getting their lessons online. And we're saying, why do we drive our kids to a violin class every Saturday morning when they could do it every day online? Anyway. <laughs> I think a big, a big measure of how, how, how we're going to be able to measure this is uh, corporate re- real estate. Because I think a lot of companies are now learning and doing what they need to do to survive in a, in a distributed manner. And some people are discovering that they can do that and they can much more appropriately like put their rental income or their rental payments, their leases to much more viable uses. And I think, I think as much as crypto is used to uh, you know, working online, the, the rest of the world is not yet kind of learning to do that. Um, but at the same time, we know it's possible. And so there's, I think there's going to be this big migration over, to, over away from physical offices to, to um, more distributed, um, more distributed uh, workforces. And that's kind of going to be a sign, a, a, a trend line that we are kind of all following as a society. Yeah, to- totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I think we're going through a giant social experiment right now of, of work from home. And um, you're going to see, in my opinion, efficiency up satisfaction up, quality of life up, work hours may decrease. Listen, there is a big movement to take full time down from 40 hours, 36 hours, down lower. Like, can we have full-time compensation for four hours of labor a day rather than screwing around, you know, wasting time, all this nonsense? Can we actually produce the goods and services, industrial manufacturing, whatever we need to do, in a four-hour day? I think yes. And can you do it decentralized? Do you have to go into an office? I don't think so. I think coronavirus has really like, especially when it just puts everyone at home and then they're bored and they're thinking about things, they're thinking about why, how crazy the world actually is. 
it's like a very sobering moment. And so all of the things that we thought were normal and just the way that it was like an eight hour workday in an office that you're driving 45 minutes to and from or on public transportation to and from, all of a sudden we're starting to realize like, like hey, that's, that's kind of dumb. And like that was, that was dumb before coronavirus and it'll be dumb regardless of coronavirus. And so like we should reorg now. And so I think aside from all this, the terrible stuff that's happening with people's health and the markets, like I think at the end of the day, it's still a very sobering moment to think about the weird things that were weird before Corona. Have you guys seen any of the like videos around the, the impact humans have just during their activities of daily living traditionally before COVID and what the world looks like now, like Venice, Italy. Yeah. Like the dolphins coming back. Mm. The the water is clean, right? You can see like jellyfish swimming. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine if, if we, if we could fly a drone over India or industrial manufacturing plants and just to see the impact that we have the negative impact on the earth that just working from home, parking some of the vehicles that would typically be moving around, I'm sure it's got a, a positive impact and there's, um, there's great benefit that could come from it. Yeah, I think that one of the biggest positive externalities is kind of like this, this chance for the planet to uh, recover from some of the activity that humans do. I think the planet is extremely robust and resilient, but it, it needs a chance to catch up. Uh, so hopefully this is kind of one of those major positive changes and hopefully it's, it's something that kind of extends beyond uh, kind of riffing on what David was saying. Can I hit one other point? Cause yeah, I, yeah, I, do I, it. Do it. Th- th- this is important. I think in 2016, Jeff Bezos um, was doing a lecture and he talked about why it's so important that people like Elon Musk and he are building kind of space technology and, and doing the heavy lift right now, trying to get a bloated, inefficient me- a method of going into space, more streamlined, more efficient, less cost, et cetera. It- it's the same thing as the people who built the internet, right? It was slow, it was shitty, it, it kind of sucked at first, but then once it worked, the next layers that you were able to build on top of it didn't think about the internet. It was the base layer and you were just building and innovating and it was awesome. Crypto's doing the same thing, right? <laughs> but, but here we have, the spa- the <laughs> right? we have the space, we have the space travel thing. And it's important for Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all the people that are building space travel and making it more efficient for it to work. Because if it works, that is the building of the internet and it allows for smart people, innovators, entrepreneurs to build space-type businesses. Imagine, and this is what Jeff Bezos said, and I thought it was just amazing. He said, eventually, Earth will be zoned residential. There'll be no heavy industry, oil, mining, this polluting. It'll just be where you live. There'll be some light industrial stuff, but you live here. Everything else will be put in subspace or space, right? So you'll have solar panels that run 24 hours a day because they're in space. The earth blocks solar panels, so they only work when the sun's shining on them. So we will produce energy infinitum, and energy will be free. 
which will unlock human potential on Earth, right? If everyone has electricity, if everyone has access to light and power, it just changes everything in a major, major way. So heavy industry in space, um, we, we make space travel light and efficient, and that's the layer two and the layer three, and eventually you don't even think about space travel because we're going to China in 45 minutes or Mars in two days. And right, that's easy to see. Mm -hmm. It's on you guys to be able to describe crypto in a way that gets old people to conceptualize that stuff, right? I can see the rockets. Mm -hmm. I can see the space station. I can see solar panels orbiting the earth it's hard to see Ethereum and Bitcoin. Are you optimistic that the older generation are going to be able to accurately comprehend the power of these systems? Because I'm, I'm more optimistic that the children of this world are going to just grow into it more than I am the older generation are going to figure it out. Yeah, so I have two perspectives on that. One, dinosaurs become extinct. So these, these folks are just going to die out. Um, but I also, I also have been privileged enough to see old people on buses and trains with iPads, which was like, it was shocking to me because I just never would have thought that, right? So they didn't go to computers and the clunkiness of the internet, but, the, but iPads and, and their telephones made things super easy for them. But I mean, you talk to Robert Kiyosaki and he literally can't use his iPhone. So you know what I'm saying? Like he's, he's like 60 something years old, super rich, obviously intelligent. You know, I'm reading his books, whatever, but he'll tell you, I don't even know how to use the internet. I don't really know how to use my cell phone. It's like, okay. And he knows how to buy Bitcoin. And gold, right? <laughs> yeah. And hold down that cap lock button. Um, so speaking of, speaking of uh, translating crypto to people that need, need help visualizing it, Morgan Creek is probably the leader in, in doing that for pensions and for kind of more traditional um, allocators. Like what's your, what's your secret sauce? Like how do you guys kind of describe this, this crazy, this crazy world to more traditional folks? When we came together, our strategy was Mark has a long history of institutional investing. He's got gray hair. He's got the experience, Right. Pomp is who Pomp is. And then I had this kind of healthcare uh, success over a 20-year period. So we felt that my operational experience in business building, coupled with Pomp's marketing kind of flair, and, and then Mark's institutional uh, kind of muscle memory, and the fact that he, he's been around for a long time, 40 FTEs, what have you, we thought we could, we could tell a story to institutions that... Um, that would resonate with them. And we found in the healthcare space, uh, in the academic space, and in the public pension space, uh, entrepreneurial visionaries that were willing to take a very small segment of their fund and, um, and understood that it could give them an outsized return and affect their sharp ratios in a very positive way. And telling that story uh, and, and winning their confidence was, was key for us. I'd like to talk a little bit more actually about uh, the ability to spin a narrative and, and to tell a story. Uh, Cause that's something that I, I've really pushed up against. Cause I have like, I have two podcasts and I do a bunch of writing 
uh, and it, it's become part of like how I have to think about whatever I'm doing. Like I'm spinning a story. And so I think that's what Pomp is doing. And that's what, that's what you're doing as well. Like Pomp is a narrative spinner. He's a storyteller. Uh, can you kind of tell, tell us how that's worked in your endeavors into bringing new people into the fold? Yeah. So, and you guys should look at your podcast this way. I mean, if you want it to scale, if you want to, you know, increase viewership and actually increase the revenue, whatever it is that you endeavor, you have to do two things. You have to, you know, recruit, talk to, and work with the best talent in the world. And you have to raise money, right? And with the raise money thing, you can't run out of money. So those are just things that I look at in terms of entrepreneurs. And so between Pomp, myself, and Mark, we all are business builders. You know, Mark started his own firm, left traditional work to do his thing. Pomp's built a few businesses and sold them as well. And that's what I do my whole adult career. So the three of us have the ability to think and work and build, but also sell, right? We don't have an outside sales team. So if I'm going to try to raise money from you, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to try to compel authenticity, my, my excitement for what uh, I'm doing, my belief, my commitment, show you that my money is, is right there. Like I get called out all the time. Like I'm like, Hey, I'm buying Bitcoin today. And people will be like, Oh man, he's buying like, you know, a hundred Satoshis. And then, so I'll say, no, I bought five Bitcoin, you know, and I'm not trying to flex. I'm trying to say I am in this seriously, seriously. And when I'm, we're buying Bitcoin, I mean, we've deployed, I don't think people think about this, $130 million all into blockchain and Bitcoin, right? We don't own any altcoins. We have an investment in Bitwise, right? So in Bitwise, you get the, the top 10 uh, cryptocurrencies by market weight. We have some exposure there. So people will pound me and say, ah, oh, you're shit, you know, buying shit coins, you know, maximalists. I, we only own Bitcoin and we don't trade. We don't, we don't trade. We take, we take our assets, our money, fiat, and we find moments that we want to punch in and we just buy Bitcoin. So that's what we've done. We, we have, uh, you know, a liquid position in Bitcoin, and then we have our, our equity positions in those, um, in those businesses. But your job, raise money and have awesome talent around you. Talking about how, you, how Morgan Creek allocates to Bitcoin and crypto, um, can you kind of talk about like the place for DeFi, stable coins, all this kind of other stuff that's happening in crypto? Yeah, so this, this is, and I know you probably have some, some thoughts on this. So I look at Bitcoin right now for an investor like me as a stranded asset. And that may not be the right term for it. I'm not trading it, right? So I bought it and I'm holding it. It's professionally custodied. That's how we approach it at Morgan Creek. But I, wanna, I want everything to be working. And beyond just our belief that Bitcoin will continue to appreciate in value as you know, momentum builds and all the things that you know, we can talk about tonight, um, I, I wanted to earn interest on it, right? Because just leaving it stranded didn't make sense. And that's why I'm so bullish on BlockFi at first, right? Because I was able to take, and, and I do this personally, I was able to take Bitcoin, put it in BlockFi and earn interest on it. Beyond that, the UI UX experience, and again, I, I was, I, I've been trading and buying Bitcoin and crypto since uh, late 2015, early 2016. So just to give you guys some perspective, when I started, uh, and I started with Gemini, 
I connected my bank account to an account at Gemini uh, in exchange and, and put fiat into that exchange. And I think they only offered uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum at that time. Guys, like every four or five days, the site would be down. There'd just be like a rocket saying under maintenance. I mean, if, if ever there was volume, rocket under maintenance. I mean, it we was remember so, that. Yeah, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. But, uh, but I learned- would do it too. Yeah, we did too. right. But, but I, you know, that was just the education process. Gemini added more products and services and then they developed GUSD. And from my perspective, you know, keeping fiat in my bank and in a money market may make, uh, you know, 1% APY. You've got inflation. You get all kinds of things happening that are no good. You've got rehypothecation of my money at a bank. So they're lending it out 12 times. You know, if I go to the bank and say, hey, I need $2 million of my cash, no way. They're not going to give it to you. They'll show you it on a ledger. They'll ask you things like, hey, why do you need that money? It's just like really, it's upsetting and unsettling. You know, so for me to go to a stable coin, earn interest, again, you know, I'm not, I don't own, I'm not an investor in Gemini. I use GUSD. I put GUSD in blocks. I am an investor in BlockFi. I earn 8.6% APY on cash that would have been sitting at my bank at best making 1.5%. And again, if I tell someone that and they, that doesn't resonate with them, I need to move on. There's just no reason why you wouldn't do that. And you can pick your stable coin. Your question about DeFi, it gets a little weird there, you know. I worry about insurance. So there is insurance at BlockFi and there is insurance at Gemini. I'm not sure there are insurance programs in DeFi mechanisms to make me whole if there's a hack. I've invested in companies to build insurance. Um, And maybe I'll stop there because you may have the answer to that. Yeah, there, there is this one company called Nexus Mutual. And so it, it'll offer you a rate for a, you know, a specific contract, but it's like a by contract basis on Ethereum. So like the compound contract, if you have your die in compound and compound gets hacked, then you can buy insurance. And so you would be like lending out your rates at your die at 8%. And then you would give to Nexus Mutual, like basically like 1.5% or 2.5%. And and do you think, do you think that that's something that the market wants? Uh, I know the the people I know and trust in in Ethereum use it. They are customers. Um, Not very many people have actually gotten paid out uh, by it, but they have paid people out. So wait a minute. The BZX hack. If you remember the BZX hack in February, Nexus Mm -hmm. Mutual paid people out who lost money there. Wow. Okay. Because mm-hmm. really the only protections you had historically were like Binance had a war chest in mm-hmm. case there was a hack. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wasn't aware of that, you know, and I'm really interested if the market wants a product like that. Right. Yeah. I, I would definitely say the market, definitely the DeFi market definitely does want it because the, the whole idea is that, that DeFi is insecure. And so there's this insurance fund that, that will pay you out. The insurance fund is itself something that could go wrong. Like it really hasn't itself been stress tested, uh, and and there's there's also governance and and terms and conditions issues that have not yet been stress tested. 
um, but it's a viable shot and people are paying money for it and it's, it's running as designed, solving like offering products and services and fulfillment to customers. So it's a real thing so far. That's awesome. So like, again, that would be in my sweet spot for an investment thesis at Morgan Creek. It's an infrastructure thing. It's not sexy. It's like, you know, I want to find a company, third party, Mm -hmm. that's Mm going to insure contracts and crypto and DeFi Mm -hmm. and go over the top of Gemini and stable coins and and protect a guy like me against a hack because Mm -hmm. I have been hacked. Mm -hmm. Have you? Yeah. I mean, uh, I can't talk about it, but you guys can research it. I have a lawsuit against AT&T right now um, uh, that I've personally... That's as, that's as much as we need to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Story. <laughs> when, when, are, when are traditional banks going to get like QR code-based two-factor? How long? All right. I, I, I actually, I think I said this on a podcast recently. I think 2021 traditional banks are, are in the crypto world big time mm-hmm. with YubiKeys, the whole nine yards. They are dealing with crypto. It is on your your P and L statement, like a bank will recognize it. Like they're going to ask you how much crypto do you hold, and they will they will mark to market, and you'll be able to borrow against it. Like it'll be a legitimate asset. Mm-hmm. Oh, so wow. I mean, inside of the bank, huh? Two two thousand twenty one. Wow. That's a bold prediction. Uh, I do know quite a few like very solid analysts that think that right now we're in a global financial situation where there's just no quality collateral out there. And Bitcoin, you know, it's a tiny market, but potentially could be like this form of pristine collateral that that, you know, is desperately needed. I totally agree. Again, it's like the BlockFi is the least sexy thing in the world, but all it is is a is a crypto bank. It offers a lending mm-hmm. mechanism where you can call people. They're here in New York. I mean, I hate to make things like so simple and I don't want to shill, you know, but I, I, I like to talk about things that, that I've invested in and that I own, you know, it's just. Uh, so uh, I know you're not necessarily like a DeFi expert, but BlockFi and other kind of like crypto backed banking solutions are offering, you know, really high interest rates. We were seeing interest rates similar to that, you know, in these DeFi protocols. That's all but just completely disappeared. Um, do you have any insight into like how BlockFi and some of these other companies can continue to offer, you know, 8% on GUSD? Yeah, where is, USDC, where is that? Like that? Yeah, so uh, I, think I, I think I've seen you tweet about uh, people talking about DeFi and specific vehicles, like saying, oh, I've got DAI and I've invested in this particular token and I don't know why I should buy Bitcoin. And then you'll be like, dude, you're not making any money on it. It's literally stranded there. Um, I think it has to do with liquidity pools, slippage, and just volume. So I think it's intriguing to see projects like ThorChain. And you guys may eat me alive here, but I kind of like what they're doing, where there's like 90% of all the rune is staked. And ThorChain has created a mechanism for you to swap tokens. And I think it just goes like Binance Rune to a connected token. And um, there's a lot of liquidity there because people are staking so much in this situation. You're getting paid on the swaps. And I think it's called BEPSwap. Again, you guys may know more about it. I'm, I'm very, very interested in it. And, and for example, they pay 52% APY. Rune, 52% APY. 
Yeah, but is that because of inflation? Are they inflating the token? No, no. I no. think uh, I think Rune only has five hundred million, five hundred million Rune, and I think they've only released half of it. Interesting. It's a it's a very interesting spin, you know. And I, I've talked publicly about Decred. I've I've been staking Decred for We've years. We've talked a lot about a Decred here, yeah. And I and I can tell you that it gets about eleven percent APY. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, look, you you can move this stuff around. Uh, I think when I was using, I don't know if you guys ever use Exodus. The the wallet. Right? The wallet Exodus. No, I haven't. Mm-hmm. Okay, when I first was. Uh, Again, 2016, 2017, I would use Exodus, but you couldn't swap tokens. Like you couldn't go from like Bitcoin to Ethereum very seamlessly because there was liquidity issues mm-hmm. and it costs a lot to do it. They're resolving all that now. You know, if you use like a product like Trust Wallet, for example, you can move tokens pretty well, uh, assets pretty well across. But check out, you know, again, I, I own some Rune. Um, I think Thorchain is really cool. Asgard Dex is coming. Um, the you know, the that, only guy I know that I've seen talk about Rune is this uh, Dgen Spartan guy on Twitter, who is this pseudo anonymous yeah. account, who yeah, is I also a big Synthetics fan. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. My my fascination with it is because uh, my favorite superhero is uh, is Iron Man, but my second one is Thor. So <laughs> when they started building like Thorchain and Asgard, uh-huh. I was Cut just your attention. Like, yeah, these guys are my kind of geeks. <laughs> I was listening to your podcast with Tom Shaughnessy on uh, uh, Chain Reaction, and you you had some thoughts that I wanted to dig into about the uh, political nature of the the bailouts that have have recently happened, uh, and um, how you you were, you were talking. And in my head, I had this visualization of like the money printer going burr, and then a bunch of companies like lining up and filling out forms and getting stamps of approval for access to the money printer. Uh, I think that that's a I think that's a pretty apt way to describe what you were thinking about. Is that right? I'll try not to get too upset. Like, no, no like go I ahead. Had, yeah. By all means. Yeah, because th- this really hits home for me, guys. Like when I was 23 years old, I started FastMed, and I built that company from me being the first employee to having 1,400 employees. I never laid anyone off. I went through 2001, the 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 9/11. I went through 2008 the economic crash and exited my company in 2015 and then started another company, PRTI. Along the way, my college buddies uh, and I opened up a restaurant. It's been open for 15 years. It's a pizza place. It employs like 45 people. I have another 45 people that I employ at my startup. And then I have all kinds of uh, service companies, juice bars. I I have a lot of kind of peripheral stuff. COVID hits. And we have to shut everything down. March 18th, the restaurant business, which is super important to me. My buddies, they live or die making pizzas. I'm not a non-operating partner, but I've invested in it. And I love them and want them to be successful. The best restaurants in the world operate at about 15% profit margin. So zero to 15% profit margin on restaurants. The best in class are at 15%. 58 million people work in small business. 58 million people work in small business. 15 million of those 58, I believe, work in the restaurant business. They've all been sent home. They have no savings. You know, they live paycheck to paycheck. Most rent. Most have bills. 
some have families, they're unemployed. They're unemployed. The people who are running the business are scrambling, trying to figure out like, how do I keep the business going and get my people back to work? Uh, PPP is launched. We all rush out to the banks and fill out applications to get the money. Here's the, here's the rules because it confused Ruth's Chris CEO and it confused the Shake Shack CEO, <laughs> you know, publicly traded company, but I, I, I picked it up and the pizza guys did too. Less than 500 employees, 2.5 uh, months. We'll give you some OPEX and cover your salary. It's, a, it's meant to last about eight weeks, but get your people back to work so you don't fire them. 75 publicly traded companies got PPP. The money ran out super quick and most people didn't get it. An overweight percentage of PPP money went to Washington, D.C. Ask yourself why. Why did an overweight percentage of the PPP money, the first tranche of money, go to Washington, D.C.? Crony capitalism. I didn't even know what that word meant. I just heard old financial economists screaming it. Max Kaiser, and I'll throw Mark under the bus here. Crony capitalism, man. People were just, that had banking relationships. You know, they knew somebody um, or it was some political kind of game. They got the money. It didn't mm -hmm. go to the people who needed it. So my company sent 45 people home. Sorry, guys. We kept the skeleton crew to keep us going until they turn the lights back on. The pizza place, gone, you know, sent 45 people home. This stuff I don't take lightly, man. It's like breaking my heart. I'm sitting here in this basement watching, you know, TV and having a guy, the CEO of Shake Shack, say, oh, you know, I got this $10 million and uh, we're going to give it back, you know, um, like, a, like a hero, like heap moral, uh, moral praise on me. Yeah, like I'm doing a good deed. You know what I was screaming? Who's getting fired at Shake Shack for taking that $10 million away from the people who really need it? People are suffering right now. It's just straight garbage. Then you went into the CARE Act. Now, this is a little more nuanced. It's a tranche of money that went to colleges and universities. Some of this money is for Stafford loans and Pell grants. But when you see a college like Harvard, who has a $40 billion endowment, getting $9 million, it just feels wrong. It might be right, but the optics are wrong. What's the pension for? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, so the, 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 the endowment is complicated. So I don't, wanna, I don't wanna throw stones too hard mm, here, because okay. I, I have okay. been a board, a board of trustee member of a university and a college. Endowments are segmented into restricted and unrestricted endowments. The unrestricted portion where the president can decide what to do with the money is very small. Mm -hmm. The restricted portion right. is most of the endowment. But here's the thing, guys. Management makes the rules. Management can change the rules. Right. You can go back to your board and change mm -hmm. the restricted endowment. Right. So you're going to see most of the colleges – that are sitting on big endowments, give that money back. And I already think it's happening. Harvard gave it back. Stanford gave it back. A big tranche of money went to another university I won't name, but uh, I don't think they've given the money back yet. And I, and well, I think R Ruth's Chris was getting shamed by AOC today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, just, it's just super lame. You know, I, I grew up a single family. My mom raised me, Queens, New York. She was a bartender. We were broke. I didn't have a bedroom. You know, I'm very fortunate 
and I don't take it for granted. And I still get angered when I see people suffering like this. It's, it's crazy to me. So I read this book forever ago that talks about the way that discrimination in the United States kind of uh, proliferates and, and continues. And they talked about a lot about social, social capital, where like if you're, kind of, if you're born in America and you're raised here and then you grow up here and then it's your turn to raise your kids, you know what to do. Like you know where the resources are. You know where to go if you have help. You also have friends and families that have connections that help you in, in rough times. You know when to apply for school. You know to put your kid in Little League in the fall. Like stuff like this. And this, this is kind of – and people that are newcomers to, to America or people that don't speak the language – they're, they don't have that social capital. They don't have the, the, the infrastructure webbing that supports them. And I see the same model with corporate America where like the big companies, the big companies that have like accountants that they can put full time onto applying for PPE, how can small companies compete with that? Like as soon as money becomes available from the money printer and the, this massive company that has like 499 employees, uh, come in and, and they get there, they go, all right, full time, get, get there first, you know, ask for the maximum, maximum amount of money. There's just this, this line of like, can you fill out this paperwork first before the money printer turns off? And it's and, just totally unfair. And get it prioritized at right. the bank, right? So right. the guy, my guys, they got pizza dough. You know, they're, they're doing the pizzas. They're not, they don't have a, a high powered accountant and a mm -hmm. high powered attorney and a full time person to fill out the PPP document and bring it to Jeff at the bank and tell him, get us $9 million, Jeff. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. happens. That's what happens. Right. It totally sucks, man. You know, when you were saying that, you know, I thought you may go in a different direction, but it just, just to talk about this social capital and also mm -hmm. privilege, privilege, because mm -hmm. we are privileged. In 2006, I was doing some work in Africa in Burkina Faso. Um, it's a country that's like the third poorest country in the world. I think their you know, per capita is like 350 bucks a year or something like that. And I was providing medical care in a, um, in a tertiary medical setting. And when it got dark, we had to stop because there were no lights. There was no air conditioning. It was literally just you know, a, a covered area. Um, and I don't cry. I, I can't even remember the last time you know, uh, I was moved to tears other than uh, watching Hidalgo. Uh, anytime I see- Viggo uh, Mortensen? <laughs> yeah, anytime I see someone suffering over an animal or mm -hmm. when someone that they love has betrayed them, like in Braveheart, I'm, I'm moved to emotion. Man, for some reason, this hit me. I was sitting there, it was getting dark like it is right now, and I thought to myself, I was just born in America. Like, I, I mean, I have everything. If I was born here in Burkina Faso, just born, genetic lottery, I would literally be suffering from waterborne illness, diarrhea, a tree falls on me, it's over. If a baby doesn't latch on to a mother, it starves. Like, that's just not the things that we face here. So this, this social capital privilege that we have for being born in America, I, I don't take for granted. And, and I think that's what- to the money printer too. And mm -hmm. dude, that's why it burns so hot mm -hmm. when I see people going, hey, there's some free money. The government's a sucker. Let me get mm -hmm. some of it. Run mm -hmm. that money printer.
Mm-hmm. Well, so let me let me jump in and take this a slightly different direction. Like what we're kind of talking about is the moral hazard of and the Cantillion effect of Absolutely. someone kind of having control of the money. And I think that's why all three of us are passionate about, you know, separating money and state while people are sitting at home and bored and, you know, getting woke to the world. Like, do you think that there are substantial amounts of people that are kind of like waking up to these instilled inequalities? Yeah, I mean, look, you can throw a few stats at, at this question. One, I, I think we've reached unemployment uh, rates right now, like we're at 20 or 30% unemployment, which is like rivaling 1930, the Great Depression. So, and it happened in like five weeks. So it didn't happen over months or years. It happened in five weeks. We've hit numbers like the Great Depression. Um, I think that's woke a lot of people um, right now. The other thing that I I, I would challenge people to think about is this. In 2008, when we went through the the economic crisis and the housing collapse, Bernanke turned on the money printer and quintupled the money supply. He quintupled the money supply. But it didn't cause inflation. So from 2008 to 2018, you can look back, and we didn't have inflation. And you scratch your head and you say, why? Because that money never came into circulation. It stayed in the banking system on ledgers, right? This is different, I think. This time it's different. The money's coming. It's probably going to be $10, $12 trillion. And it, it's being pushed into, um, into utilization and usage because I, I think it was Chamath uh, who said this. The thing that will fix our economy is American consumerism. It's not government spending. It's going out and shopping, people going out and buying things. That's what, that's what will revitalize our economy. Well, all this free money that's here is going to cause inflation. I think people are wise to it. People are, are unemployed right now. Um, and it's a, a really shaky time, man. When people start to go back, like when we turn the economy back on, but 15 to 20 million people don't have jobs because those businesses are fucked. They're lost. Then the real pain's going to kick in. Like what then? Well, do you actually think that inflation will happen in that situation? Because potentially like you could actually make the argument for why deflation will happen. Debt is being destroyed. No one's spending money. Yeah. I mean, rates, rates, rates could go below zero. Rates could go below zero. You know, I'm, I'm speaking specifically uh, about the the amount of money printing that's gone on and what I've seen historically, if that money doesn't come into circulation, we don't have inflation. I think the money's coming into circulation. We should have we should have inflation, and that's why gold and Bitcoin are so important. I'd like to get your opinion on the uh, very strong V-shaped recovery we've seen in equities markets. So do you think that is, that's transient or do you think that's reflective of a coronavirus that's perhaps not as big as the deal as the market initially thought? I think the market has a way of making people who think they understand it look really foolish. So um, I think if you're looking to time the recovery, mm-hmm. I think you probably missed it. And there's probably no dip. It's probably where it needs to be. Um, and, you know, I, I think the information is there. Again, the, all the information the market I think has. The market knows, right. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
Yeah. I don't know. I know. Like, yeah. I, I was waiting for you to jump in there with my, uh, well, yeah. MMT. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, or, or the efficient market hypothesis. Uh, That's right. I, I just, I don't, I don't think that the market knows and that, and maybe like you said, maybe I'm going to have egg on my face and I'm the idiot here. I'm only, I'm a young guy. So <laughs> clearly I don't have that much experience, but just like talking to, to people, like they think, they think it's water under the bridge. Like uh, my neighbor, she's an old, she's, uh, she's a little older, uh, but she's like, Oh yeah. You know, I think San Francisco has been doing a good job. It, it seems like, you know, the coronavirus is almost gone. Like we're, we're, we're out of this thing. And that's, and I think that that is a, a, a big sentiment and I just don't know if that's real. Yeah. Well, I've think, also seen think that of, sentiment. Yeah. But guys think about like what happened in oil. So like two days ago you saw, oil contracts go to minus $37 a barrel. For the first time in history, oil went below zero and traded at minus 37. And the reason that happened was because when those contracts expired, the there are two types of investors in this oil market. There are those that right. take physical delivery of oil and those are fine and then there are financial investors. The financial investors don't ever want to take physical delivery of the oil. So when those contracts expired, they were like, oh, shit, take the oil for free. Take the oil for minus 10. Take the oil for minus 37. There were no takers of physical oil because it was such a liability. There's no storage. I don't think that goes away just because COVID goes away, right? It starts to get better. It gets better because demand starts to come back online for oil, right? But you have to cut supply. Demand is down. And we have this mess right now uh, where fossil fuels are like worthless. Mm-hmm. And, and there is also no demand on the horizon either. And, and even when it does start to come back, it's going to come back very slowly. Yeah. I mean, again, think about what we're talking about, the new normal. What mm-hmm. if people don't go back to work? What if 30% of people are unemployed and then 50% of the businesses that used to have an office don't have an office anymore? They say, you know what? I really liked the work from home thing. Let's cut our OPEX and CAPEX and we're going to decentralize our business. You guys are happy. I'm happy. So now nobody's driving. Nobody's using public transportation for the most part, Mm -hmm. right? New businesses and innovations come. So we start to gobble up the unemployment, but those people are going to work from home too. Fossil fuels are fucked. Nobody's buying that stuff anymore. You know, I'm saying that in the future, power is free because Bitcoin, and I think you tweeted this today, Bitcoin is driving renewables. Bitcoin is causing a, an innovation in, in renewables. And I believe that because for the first time, we have a, a buyer of, of power, a user of power that can stay online 24-7. It, it could use its computing, data centers. Uh, it could really harness the potential we have of creating power very cheaply and efficiently in environmentally friendly ways. So it's pretty exciting. There's, there's all these new opportunities coming out of this, but things look very different. So actually I, I kind of want to stay on this tip and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Cause I think this fits nicely with the theme of investing post Corona, but um, you know, you've kind of painted an image where the energy landscape is changing dramatically and, you yourself are, are actually invested in, uh, you know, in uh, recycling, you know, old tires and, and, and mining Bitcoin with that. Uh, I'm curious, like, what does mining look like in America in the, the next, you know, two to three years? And 
what existing industries benefit most from adopting mining? I look at, and, and again, we didn't get a chance to talk about why I mine Ethereum. So let, let me go there. The reason I mined Ethereum is because it used GPUs. And I had told myself, you know, I, I understand mining Ethereum a little bit. And I think in the future, driverless cars, all kinds of really horrible oversight in terms of, of tracking everything we do, um, robotics, um, CGI rendering, all of these things are going to take massive computing. So we're going to have to have the ability to do things like that. So I thought myself, let me build um, GPU mines that I could flex into different verticals, whether it's CGI rendering, uh, driverless cars, mine Ethereum. I can mine Ethereum, sell to all coins. That's why I did it. And I think power generation deployed in a decentralized way because decentralized power is going to be key. Our legacy grid is very vulnerable to terrorist acts. If you hit our legacy grid in a few spots, you could black out America and you can only imagine the chaos when you don't have power. So decentralized power, hydroelectric, solar, tidal, wind, waste to energy, biomass, all of these things are so important to build onto the legacy grid, right? And then co-locate, co-generate, create parasitic load for cool usage. It allows for innovation to occur. So that's why here in North America and around the world, you're going to see decentralized power generation occur because that's how you turn the lights on around the world. You don't tap into legacy grids with an interconnect agreement and try to buy power, a purchase power agreement from that grid and then generate power and broker it back. You bring it direct to consumer. You bring it direct to consumer um, in all kinds of really cool ways, even over Wi-Fi uh, without wires. So again, you know, I'm riffing a bit here, but that's why power, renewables, decentralized power in all the different verticals I've described is so important. And you can mine on it, you can make concrete with it, you can dry wood pellets with it, you can do all kinds of really cool things. You can eliminate waste and create power. Power goes to zero. We come up with all, the, all these cool things that we can make with power um, and, uh, and we light up the world. And then we, then we move everything off of the earth into space. <laughs> the, the bull case for, for power in general is that Bitcoin provides the incentive to you figure out how to produce your own free power at home. You generate your own power at home and then mine your own Bitcoin at home to whatever degree that that is possible. Um, there's always going to be economies of scale, but if you can get your power generation system down, like the zero electricity cost because you have solar panels on your local roof, uh, all of a sudden, Bitcoin mining is like the, the cost, the long-term cost of that really just to go down to zero. Yeah, I mean, look, we're mining at PRTI at, and I'm talking about fully loaded, all my costs. So I have an IT guy, everything. You have 6.17 megawatts. It costs me about 1.2 cents. So that's, that's like Mongolian warlord level uh, cost. And so it's profitable for me to keep that going. People are paying me for my fuel source and, uh, you know, let's build lots of PRTIs. Awesome. Well, I definitely have painted the future where 
Bitcoin is kind of the impotence for decentralizing the grid and localizing the grid. I don't necessarily agree with David that's going to be down to the, you know, individual homeowners. Uh, I think it's, there is more, uh, you know, there is uh, some benefits to having scale, but, uh, you know, maybe each town or maybe we'll even see uh, people move to where energy is actually located. Well, well, think, uh, so think, I think this well, could think about everything. this, but, but think about this for a second. I, I live in a development that has 74 homes. If, if all 74 homes, the homeowners association got together and they put solar panels on all the homes and we co-opt that power, we could cut our mortgages. We could gain efficiencies. We become a power station. I mean, we must sit on 50 acres, 60 acres. How, you know, our rooftops could generate power in a co-op. And we and can share an upside and use our real estate. We're just mm-hmm. leveraging what we have. Mm-hmm. The individuals can do this. The individuals can do this. And then people who live in the next neighborhood could say, I don't want to buy fossil fuels. I want to buy from Jason's solar neighborhood because I want to be a good steward of the environment. Why wouldn't the individual do that? The future, everyone can start to be their own gas station if they put uh, solar panels on their roof and then allow you to come to your house and buy your power. It's just like, just reel your electric self-driving car into the garage and plug in and, and pay, me, pay me for my power. Right. Yeah, I mean, without a yeah, doubt. I mean, think about, th- think about that. What is the limitation around, solar, uh, around electric vehicles? Charging stations? What if everything was a charging station? Yeah, what if mm-hmm. everything was a charging station? If I'm driving by your development and you're beaming me electricity over Wi-Fi and I'm microtransacting with you in real time, it's just like bang, 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 bang. Everywhere I drive, it's giving me power and I'm paying them. That's real. That's doable. You're a <laughs> sucker if you're not selling power to mm-hmm. everybody that's right. passing you. Right. Mm-hmm. You're missing out. Missing out on the gains. Missing out. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We, Bitcoin aligns incentives. That's really what it comes down to, in my opinion. Um, I'm, I'd be curious to learn more about uh, power over Wi-Fi in the future. I don't understand how that happens without frying my brain, but um, I'm, I'm very open-minded and excited to see how six, that turns out. It's, it's 6G, unweaponized. Oh, we're up to 6G. 6G. Now, huh? 6G, yeah, it's not even 5G. Everyone's freaked out about 5, 5G caused uh, coronavirus, right? Have you guys uh, heard that? I, I, oh, I, I can't imagine. Every, every kind of conspiracy is out there. All right. Well, Jason, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you know, spit a lot of hot fire on here. We, we kind of like ran around a ton of different subjects, but I learned a lot personally. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate the time. Mm-hmm. It's my pleasure, guys. I always enjoy it. Thanks, Jason. Um, you, got, those, you got a ton of energy. So thanks for coming on and sharing. Yeah, man. It. For those who, uh, who don't follow you already, where can they find you and who do you want to hear from? Yeah, if you guys could follow me at uh, J Williams FST MED. Uh, if I hit 30,000 followers, I think I need 200 more followers. I'm giving away some Bitcoin, you know, so nice. I know, yeah, I just, I just like to, uh, and I, I think, you know, I, I really think it's important that lots of people own Bitcoin. I don't want just a few people to benefit from this. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's really important to me. Um, so that's why I just, I try to kind of share it and, um, you know, as an educational thing, but also it's just my way of helping out. Absolutely. It's, it's a bottom up revolution, right? I, I think so. Absolutely. The beautiful thing. Absolutely. Like Robert says. Yeah, I love it. He loves it too. He loves it. Honestly, that's been one of the things to kind of get older people on board. I'm just like, you read read, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Hey, look at what this guy's saying about Bitcoin. It's incredible, right? Yeah, that's uh, definitely 
that's a good podcast to go listen to. I mean, he says some kind of wacky stuff uh, with pomp, but uh, Robert Kiyosaki's that was fire. Awesome, yeah, awesome. All right, guys. all right, guys. Well, you can follow the podcast at POV CryptoPod. You can follow me at CK underscore Snarks, David. You can follow me at Trustless State both on Twitter and on Bankless. Thanks, everyone, for for tuning in. David loves Bitcoin. I do. He Bitcoin's does. great. It's fantastic. Yeah.